right, we are continuing with part two of 1857 India. You know, we were just, I was just going to get into the final battle for Delhi, which the revolutionaries lost. And there's a book that a future guest of my other podcast, uh, Samir Dosani, he, his father-in-law writes a lot about 1857, Dave. So his father-in-law has a book called Letters from Spies and Delhi Was Lost. So it's basically all about, um, he's kind of reading the sources of spies, basically like all the letters from spies that they have about that kind of spy battle. And like there was one, in, there were two spies that were very close to Emperor Bahadur Shah and they were uh, instrumental in, especially how the, this battle ended, which I'll get into. One was Mirza Ilahi. I can't remember the other name. Um, so uh, just before the battle, Hodson, who was one of the commanders, one of the British commanders, he said, Anglo-Saxons can thrash Asiatics at any odds. So that'll give you a flavor for the thinking. There was, um, you uh, you know, Mishra, some of the people who get into the military details, they they talk about how at the beginning, the British really wanted to make sure that they had enough European troops. There, that was a big concern of theirs was that they were relying on uh, Indian troops and any of their Indian troops could mutiny at any time. So uh, they kind of gathered all the white troops they could from the whole region. So uh, there, they recalled a fleet that was on its way to China. There was the Rangoon Regiment in Burma, the Madras Regiments. All of them were called north. Um, and the Punjabi troops, that was like a big bulwark of uh, the troops that stayed on the British side. But they were very worried about them too. Because there were a lot of... Um, there weren't like whole units that mutinied, but there were quite a few um, Sikh uh, troops that just defected kind of in ones and twos and and fought on the side of the Indian uh, fought on the Indian side the whole time so uh, this is one of the another thing that this um, author Shamsul Islam uh, the same guy who wrote letters from spies he has a book specifically about how Sikhs fought on both sides because there's apparently a real myth in India that the Sikhs were kind of instrumental in uh, the victory of the British right. in 1857. Right. And he, this guy, Shamsul Islam is like, well, okay, but there were also lots of Sikhs fighting on the other side. So let's not like claim that the Sikhs as a community were all pro-British. They weren't. Um, so uh, Commander Nicholson proposes a bill for the flaying alive impalement or burning of the murderers of the women and children at Delhi. He means the British women and children at Delhi, obviously. Um, and he says, you know, the idea of just hanging the perpetrators of such atrocities was maddening. He said, I wish that I were in that part of the world that if necessary, I might take the law into my own hands. So that's like a, a sense of how... Uh, how the British are going to behave when they finally defeat the Indian armies. Um, there was a little bit of hysteria on, yeah, on their part. Yeah. Uh, there was hysteria. And I, I, I was going to say this later. Um, there were letters from other parts of India, like Bangalore that had no, and in, no involvement or experience describing like lurid crimes against white people by Indians. And Karl Marx once again comes through. He actually like, would write and reply. He wrote a reply being like, this guy who wrote this letter of this account of rapes of white women is in Bangalore, nowhere near the action. Um, and so, 
you know, again, credit to Marx for having the geographical knowledge and the will to kind of, you know, get the facts out there or try. Just a minor note, the, the Hodson that you quoted before, that's um, Rakes Hodson. He was a leader of, uh, not a militia, irregular cavalry. He basically formed his own unit of, you know, white Brits who were there for revenge. So right. They just went out and, and captured Indians. And if they had weapons or looked like they might have weapons, they, they yeah. basically hanged them and shot them yeah. uh, indiscriminately. So that's kind of like your source is the equivalent of. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, essay or whatever. Yeah. Well, um, so the British. It ain't Robert oh. E. Lee. That's, that's <laughs> my point. It's more like the guy who founded the KKK. Right. The British take Delhi in September, uh, on September 20th. So um, again, I think a lot of it is this kind of spy war, but uh, the British soldiers lost in the whole like several month long battle is listed as about 4,000, 3,837. Um, but all the sources are like, we have no idea how many Indian military or civilians lost their lives. Um, at this time, the commander in chief of the Indian forces, uh, Bakht Khan, who was a Pashtun, actually, a Patan from uh, Rohil Khand, I think, um, he he made a proposal to take Bahadur Shah Zafar with him. He said, come with me, we'll, we'll keep up a guerrilla war, um, we'll run them all over. Delhi was always indefensible from his perspective, so, you know, it's important as a symbol, etc., but, like, he was never going to uh, stand or fall based on what happened in Delhi. The emperor was convinced by two of his British, pro-British advisors, basically spies, uh, to stay behind. He argued with Bahadur. He said, you know, let's uh, leave me behind. I am too old. Um, but he kind of says, you can fight on in my name. Um, his sons, the princes, they all hide out in Homayun's tomb. I've been to Homayun's tomb. It's, uh, you know, it's a Del it's in Delhi. Um, and they wanted to die fighting, but again, the same British agents, uh, Il Mirza Elahi and the other one convinced them to surrender. Uh, the British promised them safe passage and then of course murder them. Um, uh, in terms of like, yeah, the vengeance, vengeance angle, which, you know, is an interesting word, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, the, a British, here's a quote, a British officer actually proposed that the city of Delhi should be razed to the ground, leaving only the cathedral mosque converted into a church to remain a grim memento of Christian prowess. Um, they, the when the British take the city, they appoint these, uh, what they call prize agents. So the prize agents held, uh, again, I'm quoting, that this whole city had by conquest become the property of the army. So they actually kick everyone out of the city and then the Muslims uh, have to pay 20%, 25% of everything they have to get back in. The Hindus have to pay 10%. That's odd. Yeah. They, well, they're trying to do the communalism, right? And they also hold uh, Muslims more responsible for the rebellion than, oh. than Hindus. So, uh, you know, it's it's supposedly fits their feelings and also uh, it's good to divide and conquer. There remain nothing but bare walls and empty houses uh so here's a letter again about uh 
quote unquote revenge. Here's a letter from a British, I guess, soldier to the Bombay Telegraph, which is also reproduced in the British press. All the city's people found within the walls of the city of Delhi when our troops entered were bayoneted on the spot, and the number was considerable, as you may suppose, when I tell you that in some houses 40 and 50 people were hiding. These were not mutineers, but residents of the city who trusted to our well-known mild rule for pardon. I am glad to say they were disappointed. Um, the prize agency, quote, now I'm quoting, appointed different officials. There were some who were responsible to collect books, others to collect beds, some for grinding wheels, and others were responsible for buried treasure. To find the buried treasures, they hired day laborers. All these goods were collected at different points. At the palace of Mansur Khan, the British had collected all the copper and bronze vessels found in the city, and the house of Professor Ram Chander was used to collect the books. Uh, another quote, they would offer safety of life certificates to the notables in return for them paying large sums to the prize agency. Some people were so desperate that they themselves disclosed the location of their goods so they could use the commission to fulfill their daily requirements. Sons betrayed their parents and some people reported on their relatives. Um, there was another quote. There was a magnificent mosque known as Akbar Abadi Mosque. This was demolished in the same manner as many other smaller mosques were destroyed. At this point, there was <clears throat> a big British lobby that wanted them to destroy the Jama Masjid, the big mosque in Delhi. Um, in fact, it was John Lawrence who I told you uh, designed some of these uh, let's blow one in 10 out of cannons punishments. He, uh, his soldiers had demolished mosques in Lahore, Peshawar, Ralpindi, and all along the Grand Trunk Road. But he turned down this lobby. He said, basically, this is, uh, this is not going to help our case here if we, if we destroy the greatest symbolic mosque in the entire country. Um, so, um, yeah, and then Lord Elphinstone, famous from the Anglo-Afghan War, uh, he said the looting that took place in Delhi was greater than at the time of the attack by Nader Shah, which actually I think we covered uh, in a long, a long, many episodes ago. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, when you lose a revolution, um, it's it gets pretty bad. And uh, I'll talk about the numbers, but um, the the massacres were pretty grim. So, uh, Neil is Neil. Does Neil have a pedigree like Hodson? I don't know. Okay. So Neil, um, bombards a village called Dariabad. Um, kill, he kills 150 women and children are killed in the bombardment. And then there's a massacre in the village, 200 more. Uh, he imposes martial law in Allahabad. So Allahabad was a big, battle and then afterwards a big massacre the aged women and children are sacrificed they were burned to death in their villages uh, on page 527 there's another quote it mattered little whom the redcoats killed the innocent the guilty the loyal and disloyal the well-wisher and traitor were confounded in one promiscuous vengeance scouring through town and suburb they caught all on whom they could lay their hands porter or peddler shopkeeper or artisan made them dangle on the nearest tree near six thousand beings had been thus summarily disposed of um, so there's a, this Allahabad massacre then plays into the Kanpur massacre where the sepoys are basically, they've, they 
defeat. Um, so Nana Saheb, who was uh, basically one of the big commanders of the on the Indian side, he was from the Marathas. He's like the heir to the Maratha military title. Mm-hmm. So Nana Saheb, uh, he has a lieutenant named Tatya Tope, who also is important in the end game, and Azimullah Khan, who's like w- one of his diplomats. So Nana Sahib defeats the British uh, and then they make a deal to let the British civilians leave. And the way that the pro-Indian accounts tell it, it's basically like um, the they started to hear about, they kind of heard about um, the Allahabad massacre as they were organizing the evacuation of the British from Kanpur. So then they kind of lost their minds and massacred the British civilians uh, when they left. So then the when the British took Kanpur uh, from the revolutionaries, they did some absolutely horrific things. So they would do more than 100 hangings a day for months. They would make them lick blood. That was a famous thing. They would force feed them beef and pork. One of them, one of the one of the people conducting this said, you know, I want them to I want them to, I want to take away from them the satisfaction of dying uh, as a Hindu, basically. Um, so there's um, one British historian said it's better not to write anything about General Neal's uh, revenge again. <laughs> so it's always revenge, right? Um, you know what I noticed, Dave? I noticed that in the British accounts, they use the word black and they use the N word. Mm-hmm. Um, for Indians. So I, I didn't actually realize that it was just one word for for everybody, <laughs> for Indians and Africans, I guess. Equal opportunity racism. Yeah. 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 So here's one from Allahabad again, uh, British uh, soldier's account. One trip I enjoyed amazingly. We got on board a steamer with a gun while the Sikhs and the Fusiliers marched up to the city. We steamed up throwing shots right and left till we got up to the bad places where where we went on shore and peppered away with our guns, my old double barrel bringing down several, and then the N-word. Um, Every day we had expeditions to burn and destroy disaffected villages, and we have taken our revenge. Day by day we have strung up eight and ten men. We have the power of life in our hands, and I assure you we spare not. The condemned culprit is placed under a tree with a rope around his neck on the top of the carriage, and when it is pulled off, he swings. So, um, you know... It's, uh, you know, one way you can think of this is like very much like total war, right? Like they're the British just have decided at this point that the entire population of that part, right? Hindustan, basically the Hindu Hindi belt, they call it today, is guilty. And so they just conduct the war uh, uh, on the whole population. Um, here's another one. Uh Here's another one. Their official historian, Kay, he says, though I have plenty of letters with me describing the terrible and cruel tortures committed by our officers, I do not write a word about it so that this subject should no longer be before the world. Um, And then when they try to exonerate people like Neil, they'll say things like, uh, there's a historian, Holmes, who says, to him, the the infliction of punishment was not a delight, but an awful duty. It's very reassuring. Uh, I can I can draw a parallel um, to two sieges in the Peninsular War. So this would be 1811 and 12 in the Spanish campaign against Napoleon's French troops. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very, another guerrilla kind of style war. Well, right? no, this is the British Army capturing uh, a fortress 
that they had besieged. Badajoz was one, and uh, Ciudad Rodrigo was the other. It happened twice. Hmm. And what happened was after uh, a siege in which the defenders refused to surrender, the town was stormed. Once the troops get inside the town, command completely breaks down and they go wild. And they massacred the population of both places, men, women, and children. Uh, That would include uh, French garrison, uh, Spanish collaborators, but also the poor people who lived there simply got slaughtered because they were there. So there's an element of this that isn't race, that is simply the army gets completely out of hand. Wellington was appalled. He was seriously ticked off at his own army. However, they just agreed to, all right, we'll forget it and, and go on. These things happen is the sort of attitude. Yeah, and I mean, they're not going to... Dis- the whole issue, not the whole issue, but a big part of the issue is is army discipline. So obviously they're not going to... They're not going to discipline their white troops after well, the they, whole... No, they, did. <laughs> they did. They would hang yeah. like a, a dozen or so as a message to the others. All right, you've had enough, stop. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there are plenty of examples earlier in... <laughs> Western history, you know, the, the sack of Magdeburg in the Thirty Years' War and things like that. So these atrocities happen when you have armies that get out of control. What's different in this case is that the officers who should be controlling them are, in fact... In the, in the, the frenzy goal. themselves, yeah. Well, they're also saying in advance, you know, this yeah. is revenge, no quarter, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, uh, almost at the end game. Uh, when the just to st- what happened with Nana Sahib? So these these were the this kind of tri- tri- trio: Nana Sahib, Tatia Top, and Azimullah. The British take Kanpur in July. Uh, Nana Sahib and Azimullah Khan they escape. So Nana Sahib writes a letter to one of the generals. He says, "What right have you to occupy India and declare me an outlaw? Who gave you the right?" to rule over India. I guess that's what it, what this war comes to be about by the end. And Tatya Top actually, again, fights on. He, he continues a guerrilla war for another two years. Um, you know, we talked uh, in ancient history, you taught us about um, Quintus Fabius Maximus, right? Oh. The delayer fighting uh, Hannibal and uh, not fighting Hannibal, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what Tatya Top did. He, he had a principle where he's like, I will not... Uh, fight a pitched battle with the British at all anymore. And so he was just leading them and they devoted many groups, <laughs> battle groups to find, to tracking him down. And uh, he kind of led them all over, uh, you know, the, the, the whole Hindi belt basically crossed the Narmada river. Um, and he finally just dispersed his forces in January uh, and went into hiding himself, uh, and he basically gets caught in April and hanged. Um, his last statement is, uh, I know full well that having fought against the British as I have done, I shall have to prepare myself for death. I do not want any court, nor do I wish to take part in the trial. <laughs> so uh, he's, not, uh, he's, he's not got any expectations of uh, the, the law courts. Um, okay, so numbers. The numbers are big. Uh, again, like you, we know that so f- between four and six thousand Brits, uh, British people were killed. Um, 
we also know that the Wikipedia says, you know, it's as the low side is 800,000 Indians, but uh, they're like, it's probably, it was probably higher. <laughs> so the British are actually pretty good at covering their tracks in a lot of ways, as you could see by the historians and, and, and commanders who would say, yeah, I'm not going to write about what we did. <laughs> so, um, so what? here are some clues about what we do have. This is mainly from Amaresh Mishra, who, who comes to this estimate. So the Muslim records are that 30,000 ulama and religious students, all of whom essentially participated in the war, were killed um, in several of these big towns. Uh, if you add up those, all the towns uh, in UP, um, if, you, if you add up all the towns in Avad, sorry, um, that's 400,000 plus uh, Muslims alone. So Muslims alone. And if the towns they kept records for are representative of Uttar, the state of the current state of Uttar Pradesh, which is, I think, the biggest state in India, uh, and then it amounts to 1.5 million dead in Uttar Pradesh. And that's not um, that's not uh an unlikely estimate in the sense that everyone in like the whole Hindi belt, what we call the Hindi belt today, like all, including all of Uttar Pradesh was uh, up in rebellion. So that, that, that 1.5 million probably makes sense. The Hindi records uh, say that there was a 90% drop of membership in the temples um, and give an overall figure of 3 million, uh, Hindus. Uh, Hindus. I'm going to say something about Hindu versus Hinduism versus Sanatan Dharma later. Um, but let me let me continue. So that's 1.5 million there. Three million um, Hindus um, in Allahabad uh, for the Allahabad revenge over the over the next um, few months, uh, Indian chronicles suggest about five thousand deaths per week. British records testify to mass hangings along the famous Grand Trunk Road from Allahabad to Kanpur. Uh, so, if that is the case in all districts, that's another million. So we are in five point five million outside of Avad, where the center of the epicenter of the rebellion was. So Avad, there's records after 1857 of a drop of population by 20% in all districts. Mitchell, uh, one writer in 1871, says, on account of the undisplay, undisputed display of British power necessary during those terrible and wretched days, millions of wretches seem to have died. My estimate is 20% in each of the Oud, that's what they called Avad, Oud districts, our labor problems in the area arise from these facts. It is well known that in these parts and much of the UP and Oud, our men killed millions of souls. I think these areas will remain backward for decades to come. The Avad population was 10 million. 20% of that is 2 million. And there's postal records, apparently, that 2 million letters were lying unmarked. There's a letter from Postmaster Rowling to Mansfield. The matter that 2 million letters were returned between 1857 and 1861 shows the kind of vengeance our boys must have wreaked on the abject Hindus and Mohammedans who killed our women and children. So this is now up to 7.5 million before Bihar and East Uttar Pradesh are added. Um, the other British land and railway surveys are talking about 30 to 70% drops in labor, labor availability. So when we add 
Bihar and all of UP, that's probably another 2.5 million. So that's 10 million um, for the Hindi belt, the parts of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh that were the primary areas of rebellion. So India is estimated to have had 150 million people at this time. And so about 10 million out of 150 million is about 7%. So pretty big, uh, pretty big holocaust i guess uh you could use that word yeah Um, and then okay so now what happens at the end we i don't think we're planning another episode on the british raj in india from 1857 (laughs) to 1947 so let's uh let's do some let's do let's let's talk consequences so the immediate consequence is that the british take over directly it's the end of the british east india company rule uh, and they they institute the viceroy. There's a very interesting pledge. Every book I've read about this, Dave, quotes this entire pledge by Queen Victoria. So Queen Victoria says, okay, look, <laughs> everybody just stand down. There's going to be a full amnesty if you stand down. Um, unless you killed you know, our people, then we, we can't do anything for you. Um, she says, there won't be any interference in your religion. Which, you know, the Indians are like, that kind of means there was, right? You're kind of admitting that there was. She says there won't be any more land grabs. Of course, there are still, but they did change their kind of land grabbing policy. Mm -hmm. They said there will be an end to discrimination in government posts, which they did try to do for a while. But then there was what was called a so-called white mutiny, (laughs) where the whites were like, no, no, we can't, uh, we're not going to be on an equal par. So they ended up re kind of segregating, but that they didn't have to resegregate until the 1880s. Um, Pardons, uh, yeah, pardons for Uttar Pradesh and Avad after they're done massacring them, I guess. So one of the, again, women leaders, Hazrat uh, Begum, Hazrat Mahal, uh, Begum. She re- she writes a reply that also becomes famous, where she says this is basically a meaningless declaration. Of course, they have to say all these things, um, but there there's no reason to trust anything they say. She says, "Let no subject." The conclusion is, "Let no subject be deceived by the proclamation." But some of what they do, they so there is a substantial reorganization by the British because of this. Yeah. So they reorganized the military. Um, they let Indians rise higher than they had been rising. They uh, bring more white troops, <laughs> um, so, and they uh, they actually uh, they they kind of have a policy where you're expected to be close to your troops, not uh, not n- not too much of the <laughs> tone down the racism. Basically, um, they they actually invent uh, the martial races concept. So they privilege you know basically the the troops that they used to put down the mutiny uh, have now become the martial races of sikhs and gurkhas the troops they had to crush in the mutiny are no longer considered martial right so bengalis and uh, hindustanis um there's uh okay so there's also like a question of like why the indians lost um what there are two reasons one is one is basically that, um, you know, divide and conquer worked. So there were still 80% of the British troops were Indian uh, still. And so there were some limits on uh, what the sepoys were able to do in terms of getting defectors to their side. And one argument, especially about the Punjab, 
is that the Punjab was kind of fresh, like they had just won the Punjab over. So when they win the Punjab, they're kind of conciliatory for a little while, right? Then slowly they start with the land grabs and the racism and they kind of change the relationship over time. So they were still in a kind of a fresh post-conquest phase with the Punjab. So they were able to keep them on their side. Um, And then, uh, you know, big princes, big merchants, they lined up with the British. Peasants, warriors, Brahmins, and small-scale princes lined up on the Indian side. But um, ultimately, that was the the kind of lineup. And Amarish Mishra, whose 2,000-page book I read in preparation for this episode, he analyzes in really minute detail which groups, family groups, castes, uh, and locations lined up on which side. Oh. Yeah. And it's interesting because he's, he, he's basically arguing that you know, people say that in India it was a caste conflict and and uh, or a religious conflict, but in in elsewhere revolutions are class conflicts. And he says no, in India, you know, it's inevitable that it would express itself in through in these caste and religious kind of ways. But he are he makes this argument that it was ultimately a class conflict as well. There's a British historian he relies on a lot named Eric Stokes who wrote a book called The Peasant Armed about the this, uh, I guess, revolution. Uh, and it's a they kind of have a similar take, although Mishra kind of has a more patriotic take and Stokes has a more like, uh, I don't know, imperial take. Um, even though he's, Stokes is very sympathetic too. Um, so Mishra, there's a quote from Mishra here where he says, identity was the medium through which classes expressed their antagonisms. A transfer of power from the ruling alliance of elite communities and occupations to a subaltern alliance of suppressed communities and occupations. Um, and Mishra, you know, as to the question of whether it was a revolution, he he argues, he says, you know, the 1871 Paris Commune lasted from March to May for just 72 days. Delhi was revolutionary for 100 days. Lucknow held on for 210 plus days. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't think it's duration. I think the difference between a revolution and uh, a rebellion or a revolt is a question of program. And yeah. That's what I don't know. What what was the agenda? Kick the British out, okay? And yeah, I mean that's one of the that's one of the arguments that um, some of the patriotic historians make too was that the that it was fundamentally like a restoration that they were looking for. It was uh, it was kind of um, it was uh, basically just a it wasn't a compelling enough alternative yeah. to uh, draw the the groups across but uh, Mishra would not agree with that um so yeah uh, I I won't read this long quote by Mishra but I wanted to he's he's it there is something about the program and about the philosophy that he's basically suggesting that um in it was a nationalism of um you know, the composite culture of India. So it was, the idea is that in India is a Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, you know, composite culture. And that was strong. There was not a Hindu Muslim division during 1857. Um, there's also like the idea of caste. Um, Mishra talks a lot about 
the the idea that caste didn't really mean uh pre-british occupation the same thing that it came to mean so it was like these these lines were hardened by the again the divide and conquer at, on a social level to harden these castes and and associate property with them um and so Mishra also, you know, this is a classic kind of nationalist thing to do, but I, I like it in this case. <laughs> Take that with a grain of salt. But he he argues that it was not, you know, you can't just fully say that it's a defeat either. So he talks about, he, here's a long quote from Mishra where he says, the British thinking rested on the theory that once the Hindu Muslim religious power is broken, India and Indianness can simply be effaced. Had the British succeeded, the India of Ram and Krishna, Muhammad, Ali, and Guru Nanak, Kayal, Tapa, Tumri, Bhajan, Gurubani, and Kawali would simply have vanished. There would have been no Indian state power, even such as we have today. Mosques, temples, gurdwaras, Indian names and identity would have vanished. This was the ultimate devious plan envisaged by the British, and it was to save India from such a future uh, that 10 million Indians died. And he says, even the overall communal polarization sought by the British never occurred, not even in 1947. Composite culture, Sufi bhakti currents, Mughal memories, Islam, and Sanatani ethos survived. And one thing I really like about this is uh, his conclusion about co contemporary politics, because he he's he believes that 1857, he calls himself like a proponent of the 1857 line, which he means by which he means that Indian nationalism is you know, um, <clears throat> composite, it's Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, uh, it, it compo comprises all these um, elements. And, uh, and so therefore, he concludes anti Muslim in India, anti Muslimism in India is not merely a communal attitude. It is an imperialist conspiracy to destroy India and its composite culture fabric. All those opposing Muslims are anti 1857 and thereby anti national forces. The matter is as simple as that. So I thought I just that's a very powerful way to read history. So and do you you uh, agree with that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I have, so, yeah. Uh, OK, you, you went with the very first consequence being, I think, one of the most important, and that's the end of the East India Company. And from then on, direct crown yeah. rule. Yeah. So. Misha seems to think that the British had a devious and totalitarian plan to eliminate Indian religions. Um, and I would, I would just plainly disagree because the British, you mean the East India company? Because well, they were incompetent. <laughs> their their well, problem was that they couldn't control the missionaries and the religious lunatics who were now coming out in larger numbers, and they didn't have a, a, a coherent policy. Were there Brits who were out to convert the Indians? Yeah, obviously. Was it like a national policy? No. And that's why the Crown, you know, in their proclamation said, Okay, that's not going to happen because we're not doing that. Now, yeah, whether, yeah, whether yeah. they actually meant it or not, there, there's a tendency to ascribe to your opponents a single will. They are, but all... it's it, 
it, it for me it's the opposite for me it's almost like they didn't get away with it so now they're saying they never wanted to do it <laughs> you know that that's how it that's how it reads to me because like i i see what you're saying but mishra also is looking at the philippines he's looking at um goa you know in india right. under right. the portuguese and he's saying like this is what they were trying to do like they'd done it before um and they wanted to do it here so, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm all for like, I, I like the nuances. I like understanding the nuances of the imperial side and the, you know, the nationalist side. But I, I do think that, you know, you're, you have this caution about using hindsight to, to read the past into the, the present into the past. But I think that cuts both ways. So I think that, I think that a lot of the things the British said after 1857, to justify what they were doing in 1857 and to sort of say, you know, the Indians didn't really get it. <laughs> that we were never trying to do that stuff. I think, you know, it's, of course they would say that, you know, it just, it makes sense that that's what they would say. I mean, that doesn't mean that it's not true. It just, you know. Well, it's, we yeah. still don't know the true story of the grease on the cartridges. Was this a deliberate yeah, exactly. attempt? Or was this just stupidity and incompetence? And given, <sighs> given all of my, I'm just saying, if it had worked I, out for them, oh, they wouldn't have complained. I, no, no, agree, hundred yeah. percent. If if India had been accidentally uh, converted to Christianity, they would have thought, oh, that's good. Wow, yeah, how exactly. did that happen? Yeah. I, I'm just suggesting that it wasn't planned at the top and carried out as a, you know, a, right deliberate right. policy <clears throat> well yeah systems yeah systems don't have to work that way right like there's a kind of an overall logic that emerges from everybody doing their thing and now which is a good uh, a good segue into the system that emerges uh as a result of the anti-58 of the anti-1857 line so mishra again he talks about how uh he doesn't like the indian congress for this reason, especially pre-Gandhi. But, he, you know, he has some sympathy for Gandhi, but he doesn't like the Congress because he basically says, look, after the post-1857 massacres, uh, India is sort of quiet for one generation, about 30 years. And then Congress emerges in 1885 as an alternative way to, to for Indian nationalism to go than, you know, a return to the 1857 line. And that means he he points out that it's the same people, the same kind of family groups and caste groups that were with the British in 1857 that uh, that are the backbone of the Congress. And um, and their model of development is basically to to do it in a way that doesn't take anything away from all of the beneficiaries of British rule. So like they don't mobilize the wealth of princely India for industrialization. There's no land reform. He calls it the landlord path of capitalist development. And so as a consequence today, even Mishra argues, and I think correctly, that India's kind of model of development is driven by keeping India open for foreign investment. Um, and, uh, and most of the wealth, again, kind of being either going to the very top or going out of the country. Um, actually, I'll say that now. Um, there's, you know, have you heard of 
I think his name is Thomas Piketty, the French uh, economist who wrote Capital. <laughs> I mean, I know Marx wrote Capital, but Piketty wrote a one-volume Capital where he kind of argues that markets... Basically, he argues with lots of data that markets concentrate wealth. It was like all the rage maybe five, ten years ago. No? Nope. <clears throat> anyway, he's, he's a well-known, he's, you know, he's a well-known kind of lefty economist from Europe, from France. And he did a paper a couple of years back called, with a with another author, Chancel, I guess, uh, called British Raj to Billionaire Raj in 2017. And he basically, again, the Piketty's thing is like lots and lots of data. So he uses all this data to show that India today under kind of the billion, the Indian billionaires is as unequal as it was <laughs> under the British Raj. So uh, definitely not Mishra's idea of the 1857 um, development line. Um, okay, so even on sports, this is where it's a little bit fun. I don't know if I, uh, again, this I don't know enough, but if Mishra's right, uh, because... If Mishra's right, I guess it would be like looking playing sports in the U.S. where there's no black players or something. Because what he's saying is, um, <laughs> even in sports, it's lack of confidence. Where is it? It's down here. He says something basically like Dalits and Adivasis, um, sturdy Dalits and Adivasis, all these lower and backward castes that are exclu- excluded from you know, playing and and making their way up the ranks in sports is why India sucks at most sports. <laughs> I kind of, you know, again, I don't know if it's true, but I think it's pretty, it's, it's, I, I had definitely never heard that before. And that's def- fascinating to me. Well, he, he said, what's that? It's happened elsewhere. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's an argument to be made that Canada has not dominated its traditional sports you know hockey and Mm. curling and so on because now you have to be wealthy to play hockey right you know it used to be that every kid on the street would be out on the on the road with their sticks playing street hockey you don't see that anymore they're all playing basketball now right right because equipment yeah so how how come why is hockey equipment gotten so expensive like it's not just hockey equipment it's the rental of ice time and uh travel and, yeah. you know, if you're working two jobs or you're, you know, you get home from your job at, at six, when are you supposed to take your kids to the rink to play hockey? And the investment is, is sizable. Uh, ski- but how could it have been less before? Like, just because everybody played and it was right. considered, you know, the, the rinks would be open for everybody to play right. in the right. city league. And right. the cost was minimal. Right. I don't know any kids now playing with secondhand equipment. It's all brand new, top of the line stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, even with you know with Cyrus, I, I consider because I have some friends who are hockey parents, but it seemed like I'm I'm then going to become a hockey parent. Yes. Like, period. That's it. And Cyrus is going to become a hockey kid, and I just you know didn't really want to. <laughs> didn't see that as the best path for either of us, really. Uh, okay, so um, a couple more notes about um, Mishra's take on it. So the Indian tragedy in culture, Mishra says, lies in the presence of a rootless middle, upper, and neo-rich class in the pseudo-English 
post-independence elite cut off from 1857 memories and the Bahadur Shah Zafar Walid Ali Shah Nana Saheb Ethos, who, these, this rootless group revels in a pretentious slavish import of foreign European influences and the neglect of both high and low Indian art, sports, or science. Figures emerging from pro-1857 forces, Dalits, Adivasis, peasants, and their families would have set India on the world artistic scientific sports map same with entrepreneurs. It is evident that the caste class structure, which today Indians, Pakistanis, and Bangladeshis take for a fact, and which plays a big role in keeping the Indian subcontinent backward, was essentially a British invention from a progressive cultural strain. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Caste became a regressive barometer of social status. The correspondence of class and property to caste is a legacy of the British era. Till the 18th century in India, class property and caste status were often exclusive of each other now i know you're you're having a reaction but let me just let me just add one point to this before your rebuttal um a lot of the 1857 sepoys were brahmins and so like the idea that brahmins are all rich uh is post 1857 um the idea that brahmins are not martial is post 1857 and his point is um, you could be from this group, this caste group, but it wouldn't necessarily correspond to your property, your wealth, or your life chances. Um, and that kind, that hardening is something that uh, you know is a consequence of the way the British played the the game locally. All right, go ahead. I, I you, don't have anything. I just your have, what? your <laughs> your rebuttal. <laughs> okay, all right. And then last, religion. Right again. This is this is the point that really attracts me to Mishra. Like whether it, at times I disagree with him or find two thousand pages to be a lot of reading. Um, he says in eighteen fifty seven, religion acted as a unifying force. In nineteen forty seven, it was used to divide India in two. India's history was right there, staring at secular forces, yet they failed to harness it to the secular cause. They virtually handed over India's religious legacy to anti-national fascist forces. And he has this to say about the Hindutva, which is basically the BJP that are running India today. He says, Hindutva forces do not believe in religion. Like all fascists, they are non-secular communal atheists. What do you think of that? Is that true of all fascists in your... Um, I I don't know. I found that an interesting take. I I never, I certainly never thought of that. Not uh, thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. You could have a lot of fun. Yeah, looking yeah. into that. Uh, I just don't know. Do you mean the the fascist movement in in totality, or individuals within the fascist movement? Because there are I, people who can mix. Yeah, things that the way I see it is, it must be the leadership he's talking about, because there are, you know, hundreds of millions of pro Hindutva people who are also religious Hindus. I'm sure. Yeah. By the way, yes, I wanted to say this about <laughs> Hindu. He does. He never uses the word Hindu to refer to the religion. And I tried to, fi- he never even explains why he doesn't. Um, so I had to look it up. He always calls it Sanatan Dharma. So Sanatan Dharma, in, when I looked it up, is the religion. And it's what they call it. And apparently Hindu is what 
it's a Persian word for people from India. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So in his view, is he's like, this is not a political movement. This is not something imposed from the outside. This is Sanatan Dharma. It's a religion. And so whenever he talks about uh, Hinduism, what we would call Hinduism, he calls it Sanatan Dharma. And it's legit. Like, lots of people call it that. But I had never, again, this is something I never came across until reading Mishra. Um, so I read, just so you just so you understand, I read a whole bunch of different um, sources. There's a big book by a Congress, like a Nehru-commissioned historian named Surendranath Sain. There's uh, Mishra, who calls himself the 1857 line. There, Savarkar, one of the founders of the Hindutva, the um, B- RSS, he wrote a book in 1909 about 1857. And then I've read lots of different British um, sources. And then Marx himself wrote a book <laughs> about it, which he actually called the War of Ind- the Indian War of Independence. And then there's another school of history called Subaltern Studies. Uh, my good friend Navu Gill is of this group. There are, um, and but what they do is they, you won't get like a big picture from them because they're all about like post-colonial studies and trying to study in real granular detail relationships in particular um, situations and like undermine both nationalist and, um, you know, imperialists narratives. They're always talking about narratives of, you know, history. So there's six different schools of thought. And what I found, I I made a little table that you can look at. I'm not going to read every entry because it's a six by six by eight table. When you Um, you can look at, are you talking to me or to yeah you and you're in the no just you. This is brilliant. I if you could post this as like a picture alongside. Yeah, (laughs) this is really well done. Good job. It took me. uh, You can imagine. (laughs) Took me a long time. Took me a lot of reading, but it was basically like. It seemed to me that every single word that I read fell into one of these camps. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, to me, that's what's. I, I bet you could create a scheme like this for almost anything, for almost any issue, if you mm-hmm. if you knew the schools. But it's what's fascinating to me is like you cannot, um, you can't escape it if you're trying to use the sources. So you have to, you have to, you have to be able to understand the where the person you're reading is coming from and when i after going through it all you know i i definitely liked marx uh, a lot but i de- i came down uh i come down on the 1857 line for sure uh so yeah that's schools of thought in history well do you want to do some of the highlights though like this is fascinating stuff yeah um okay so in terms of like, what? especially the Mughals. So reading Savarkar was really interesting uh, because Savarkar is the founder of the RSS or the, you know, one of the founders of, of Hindutva. And he, um, the, what stands out there is he sounds just the same as Mishra when he's talking about uh, the British. But the minute they start talking about Aurangzeb or Bahadur Shah even, um, Savarkar is like, these are oppressors, they're foreign oppressors, just like the British. And Mishra is like, no, this is part of India's composite culture. So it's totally a different take on on who the, the Mughals and the Muslims to, to another, to a certain extent, right? Because 
to Savarkar, the Muslims are just another foreign oppressor. So it's good to, you know, an alliance with the British is acceptable uh, if it helps you against these oppressors. Whereas, you know, Mishra, that's anti-national and totally, uh, you know, the 1857 line, that's totally traitorous and anti-national. And then Congress, the Congress historian, I found, because <laughs> Mishra talks about, at one point he calls, uh, he says, you know, there's there's debates between puny British historians, and then there's even more puny Indian historians. <laughs> and then he mentioned Surendranath Sain, and I was like, whoa! Because <laughs> I had been reading Surendranath Sain, and, and he gets a lot of credit for being, like, very factual and unbiased and and what it amounts to is this kind of middle of the road right so like he both sides things so he'll be like you know the sepoys committed crimes and the and the british committed crimes whereas to both mishra and um yeah to the 1857 line or the hindutva people there's no comparison right you can't you can't compare what a foreign occupying force does um with massacres committed by nationalists um you know know this reminds me of your your table it it makes me think of the episode we did on isms yeah so your your ism whether you are a liberal or a conservative or or a radical depends on your interpretation of previous events and in absolutely western history it's the french revolution and the industrial revolution yes i think the french revolution was awful you're a conservative conservative and as soon as we read your stuff we know we know we know immediately where you fall in in the whole deal even the title of your book will be a giveaway (laughs) the the mutiny (laughs) well got this one's a british one (laughs) like anyone any of the british imperialist uh histories call it a mutiny uh uh it's really fascinating because um Mishra goes, you know, Savarkar calls it the War of Independence. Marx calls it a War of Independence. Uh, Mishra goes even farther. He calls it uh, the War of Civilizations. Uh, and then, and then, um, and then, but the Congress, <laughs> surrender not saying, he just says 1857. <laughs> he doesn't want to call it anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. So now I understand where where Mishra is coming from. Yeah. So he is obviously not thrilled with the present government of India. No. He no. is dismayed by the their attitude towards Muslims. Yeah. And their portrayal of Muslims as the problem. Yeah. Whereas he's looking at 1857 as a certain golden period when hey, we fought together regardless of religion. Right. And regardless of caste. Yeah. And so his interpretation of 1857 is going to be, this was a great thing. So it's close to Gandhi, although, you know, because Gandhi is different from the standard Congress view, right? Gandhi, obviously, like the early Congress didn't know what the hell to do with Gandhi, but he kept getting results in terms of mobilization. So they couldn't really you know, dismiss him either. But this is pretty close to Gandhi in the sense, so like Marx thinks that caste is just eternal back, like caste and religion are eternally backwards and, you know, they need to be gotten rid of for the sake of equality and revolution. 
Yeah, but that's, the that's but, a weakness of their interpretation. They just don't understand religion at all. Yeah, yeah. But but Mishra and I'd say Gandhi are like, no, no. These things can be interpreted, and they mean different things in different times. And so you know, it's not like. Gandhi's like, yeah, untouchability is bad, but caste, you can have equality among castes the way you could have, you know, equality among different racial identities that still have separate identities, right? Like, again, I don't believe in race. I don't believe there's such a thing as races, but, um, you know, you could imagine there would still be black and white identities or like black and European African and European heritages in a in a society where there's no racism right like where people have cultural practices and histories and and linguistic and artistic you know flavors and and ideas and uh, and heritages that are worth you know honoring and remembering so that's I think how Mishra and I think Gandhi too understand things like caste um, whereas, you know, Marxists, I think, are more like, no, clean that up, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> clean that garbage now up. Now I get, Mishra. You, you really have to post this this chart. It's, uh, it's well done, and it really helps to explain why 1857 matters, and, and that is because it's still being argued. Yeah, oh, yeah. We're still yeah. fighting over what it meant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean one of my one of my other ones for Marx, uh, you know, what stands out about Marx is like their take on India's culture, right? Because it's like the RSS understands India's culture to be Hindu. So even if you're Muslim, you converted from Hinduism and you're not really, you know, you need to come back to to Hinduism in their view. And Mishra thinks that's ridiculous because whether you're a Hindu or a Muslim, you're part of this culture. And Marxism is just like India's culture is backwards <laughs> and needs to catch up. So, yeah. And in that sense, you know, that's that's part of why. Yeah, that's part that could be part of why, like. You know, pe- people may not embrace Marxism as much is because they're being told their culture is. Not as you know, because there's this, there is a kind of a idea of progress, right? In yes. in Marxism, that yeah, was adopted. So there's why I have my qualms about Mishra, because he yeah. has his present day political position, yeah, and he's looking at 1857 through a lens that he wants it to be this, yes, and I'm not sure that it is. So I've read a number of sources that basically define 1857 as the great nationalist uprising against the British. Yeah. And there's one word in there that I don't think fits. I just don't think that India had a nationalist frame of mind at the time. Um, To a certain degree, 1857 is a North Indian affair. I mean, really, it seems to be all over the Grand Trunk Road and, you know. Yeah. Like, what was Kerala doing during during this? What was going on in Tamil Nadu? Were there uprisings there? I don't think so. No. Well, I mean, the Madras presidency, right? They sent sent their whites north to uh, help the British with, uh, with, with the 
problem. Um, but yeah, so the, the but part of the timeline that I was presenting at the beginning was the the way that the British kind of crushed or conquered uh, different parts of India at different yeah. times. Yeah. So. So the question is, when did nationalism arise in India? And I'm, I'm yeah. not a specialist in Indian history, so I am perfectly prepared to be challenged and overruled on this. But my feeling is that 1857 created a certain amount of Indian nationalism. Yeah, I think I would say that it's a lot like now. I mean, we're, we can this is also a good segue into our next couple of episodes. Yes. But now that I, you know, now that I've studied this, um, I think of it very similar to Italy and Germany. So it's like there are there is a degree of consciousness and there are people trying to bring it about. But then there are powerful empires uh, in the way. And so it's um, yeah, it's it's something that develops. Uh, And you're right that 1857 is a big moment. And that's why that's why Mishra considers himself, his politics to be uh, you know, the 1857, they call themselves the 1857 line. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's what we're doing next. I've been reading about Garibaldi. <laughs> Interesting guy. Very. Somebody called him the only entirely admirable person or something. Really? Yeah, I can't remember. It was some famous British uh, figure, I think. Okay. But, yeah, I'll make sure that I... I'll make sure that I have that quote properly for the next episode. Um, and then after Italy, it's Germany. And then after that, it's our next 15 episodes. 